As we studied last week, we fixed our gaze and we focused our minds on one of the most beloved verses in all the Bible, John 3.16. It says, For God, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is, friends, God loves God gives to whoever and forever. That even as we study John 3, 17, we need to remember the context of what we are studying. Not just that God is love, but God so loved, he gave. In John 3, 16, we see both Christmas and we see Easter. God loved so much, he gave. And what did he give? The what wasn't as much as a who. He gave his son, not just to be born, but also to die. And then, yes, to rise again on our behalf for the victory over our sin. Think of it this way. God so loved the world. So God, the greatest love to the greatest degree, he gave his only son the greatest act with the greatest gift. God's reason for giving is his efficacious, resplendent, lavish love. Do we believe that? Do we know that? Part of the reason I want to come back to that is because we tend to forget that. On a daily basis, we are so quick and uh, so easy to think of God's love only in terms of what he gives us practically. But no, the very heart and center of our faith is what God, through his son Christ, has saved us from and what he saved us to. What God has saved us from and what God has saved us to. Do we understand it's both? The good news is both. There's churches that will only focus on what God has saved us from, only speak of what he saved us from without an utterance of what he saved us to. There's other churches today that only focus on the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, and they do not talk about the reality of what he saved us from. And that's what John 3.17 continues to explain, extrapolate, so that we would understand not only its implications, what it means for us, but its application, how do we live it out? All eyes back on Scripture John chapter 3, verse 17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's good news. It's really good news. So we are saved from perishing, as verse 16 says. We're also saved from condemnation, as now verse 17 says. The rest of the Bible helps us to understand what Jesus has saved us from. Listen, friends. Jesus has saved us from what Psalm 9.17 describes as the realm of the dead. In other words, hell. Jesus has saved us from what Matthew 8 verse 12 describes as a place of outer darkness. 
Jesus has saved us from Matthew, what Matthew 25 verse 41 describes as a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus saved us from what Matthew 13 42 describes as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus has saved us from what Matthew 13 50 describes as a blazing furnace, what Jude 1 7 describes as eternal fire, and Mark 9 says that fire never goes out. And then at the end of your Bible, Jesus saves us from what Revelation 21 8 says is a fiery lake of burning sulfur. When we hear that, our knees start to wobble a little bit. We're like, oh, right, the Bible says that. It should lead to awe and wonder. It should lead to worship and gratitude because that is what God has saved us from. This is the love that God demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, friends, as we talked about last week, when it says, for God so loved the world, we tend to base God's love for us on what he gives us from the world. No, he gave us something not from the world. He gave us his son. He gave us the life and the gift of Jesus Christ. He gave us the greatest gift that any father could ever give. Christ Jesus has come not only to save us from all of that horrific perishing, but he saves us to eternal life. Friends, this is the victory of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. What has Jesus saved us to? Jesus has saved us to what Isaiah 25 verse 8 describes as a place where God has removed all of our disgrace. Isn't that good news? Jesus saves us to what Hebrews 11 describes as a, I love this imagery, a heavenly country and a city whose architect and builder is God. A city, Revelation 21, verse 23 says, does not need the sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God, envision this, gives its light. And as the Bible says, the lamb, the lamb of God is the lamp. Jesus saved us to what Luke 23, verse 43, and if I could combine these two verses together, 1 Peter 1, 4 describes as imperishable. Everyone, can you humor your pastor for a moment? Say the words with me. Imperishable. Imperishable. Undefiled. Undefiled. Unfading. Unfading. Jesus has saved us to an imperishable, undefiled, unfading paradise. Oh. Jesus has saved us too. What John 14 and Revelation 19 through 21 describes as the house of a loving father with many rooms where his son, his only son, welcomes us with a banquet. He wipes away every tear and makes this declaration. There will be no more death or mourning, crying or pain, for the older things, the older order of things has forever passed away. Hallelujah. This is our victory in Christ Jesus. This is what God has accomplished in Christ. No wonder Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Amen. 
This is the victory that as John 3.17 says, God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What does this salvation look like? 1 Corinthians 15 describes the victory like this. Death, death itself has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll keep going. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 says this, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, as verse 17 says, Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. But you're going to notice in the same way that John 3.16 says the world, it's also talking about those who believe, right? It's not just everyone It's those who receive the gift of salvation. It's those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's whoever in the world believes. And that's what verse 18 says. All eyes back on scripture, 318. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Now, this is very interesting. But whoever does not believe is, what does it say? Condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God, as if to say the whole world is like the Titanic. It's a ship that's going down, and there's nothing that we could do to change it. There's nothing we could do to save it. There's one lifeboat, and that's captained captained by Jesus Christ. The whole world stands condemned. Now, what the author of the Gospel of John is trying to say, what John is trying to say Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already as if to say, when you don't believe, it's showing that you choose to remain in condemnation. D.A. Carson, one of my favorite authors and scholars, said this. He said, as with the arrogant critic who mocks a masterpiece, it is not the masterpiece that is condemned but the critic. Get that? So envision this. Envision standing before the most beautiful painting you've ever seen. I mean, you, you just stand in awe and wonder. You could just gaze upon its intricate beauty for hours, and then someone comes up and mocks it or spits at it or defames it. What does it say? Does it in any way devalue the masterpiece or the painting? No. What does it reveal? Not necessarily anything less about the painting, but more about the critic more about the one that's condemning it, okay? For example, I'll use a couple other analogies. Has anyone ever been to the Grand Canyon? The Grand Canyon? What'd you think? Pretty amazing, right? I mean, you're at the Grand Canyon. You're standing here at this majestic geographical site, and your brain is trying to compute. Like, I remember standing there thinking, I just can't, I can't, can't take all this information in. This is so big. This is so huge. It's so wide and deep. I can't take it all in. You are just filled with awe over this amazing natural sight. Envision someone coming up and saying, what's the big deal? It's just a big hole in the ground. (laughs) 
What would you think? What would it reveal more about, the Grand Canyon or that person? Right? All right, so let's use another analogy. Let's envision a sunset. Sunsets, my goodness, when the sun is setting and the clouds in all of their array, it seems like every single color that's ever been colored is now in front of you. It's just altogether majestic. It looks like you're peering into heaven itself, and you're in awe, and you just can't, you just can't take it all in. And then someone comes up to you as you're basking in the glory of this sunset and says, do you think there's anything good on television right now? No, the television, look at this. You're missing it. Or I'll use one last analogy. Envision you're at your grandmother's house. It's Thanksgiving dinner. And you just had the most succulent turkey dinner. You just had the best cranberry sauce in the can as God intended. And uh, (laughs) now, it's true. And now it's time for dessert. And your grandma can bake. And she comes out. And she brings this delicious, steaming hot, succulent, homemade apple pie. You smell it, and all of a sudden your mouth starts to water. All of a sudden you were full, but now for some reason you can eat a whole lot more. She puts it down in the center of the table, and everyone around the table says, We're not interested in this. Are there any Twinkies? Do we have any Twinkies? Are there any Twinkies in the pantry? What would that reveal? Would that lessen in any way how good grandma's apple pie is? No, it would reveal a lot about her guests, right? You see, what we need to remember is that when we either reject or deny God's grace, it doesn't devalue or minimize God's grace. It reveals more about us than it does about God. I mean, think of it this way. Think of none other than the cross of Christ. Now, we, we tend to look at it through the lens of a Bible-believing, born-again Christian, but even if you looked at it through the lens of a historical observation, we would probably be on some level shocked and horrified at what was going on. Do you remember? You remember the stories? Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, never committed any fault, mistake, or sin, he is in a miscarriage of justice, wrongly tried and condemned as a guilty man. He is whipped, he is scourged, he has a crown of thorns placed upon his brow, and then, yes, he's nailed to a wooden Roman torture device. And as he's hanging there, and as people are mocking him and spitting at him, as people are defaming him, he says to them, says to the Lord, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, it's at this time that the darkness of that moment and the darkness of all of our hearts is revealed. Because it was in that moment that they look up at him and they treat it like a spectacle. You, Jesus, came to rescue us? Look at you. You can't even rescue yourself. Maybe you're calling for Elijah. Come down off that cross. What does it reveal? It reveals that we stand condemned. Because here it is. God has given Christ. We deny it. We reject it. We run from it. He's given us the name for which men might be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says this. Salvation is found in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There is no other way. There's no other plan. There's no other possible name besides the name of Jesus. How many of us know there's power in the name of Christ? I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, Disney is remaking all of those cartoon movies that were popular 20, 30 years ago into live-action CGI movies. And it can't, it can't help me but think, even as I was preparing for this, this message, about Lion King. About Lion King. And if you remember Lion King, the story of the hyenas, who were the enemy of the king, and how they were all conspiring and planning and how they could take the king down, and someone utters the king's name. Mufasa. And then all the hyenas are like, ooh, say it again. Mufasa. And they all start to cringe and they feel the, what? The power of the king's name. There's only one king that can save. There's only one name that can save. It's Jesus Christ. The Bible says he is the savior of the world. He is the hero of this book. He is the hero of our story. Have you ever noticed, once again, using an analogy from movies, how so many of these movies are about superheroes saving the world? Long before there was an Iron Man, there was the Son of Man. Long before there was a Superman, there was the God-Man, Jesus Christ. You see, what these movies do, and I love them too, I go watch them all the time. What these movies do is they're resonating deep inside of us because we're all looking for that hero. We're all looking for that savior, but there is no other name, no other name given under heaven by which men might escape the condemnation of their own sin and, yes, the wrath of a just holy God. So that's the victory that we have, salvation through Christ. And here's the verdict, verse 19 and 20, all eyes back on Scripture. And this is the judgment. I like how some other translations say the verdict. The judgment means like the summation, the conclusion. This is the summation. This is the conclusion. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. Because why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is the verdict. It's almost like the anvil, the gavel, the gavel, I'm sorry, of the judge. This is it. Here is the truth. Here is the reality. Here is the unescapable truth that not only has the light come, now friends, listen to this, not only has the light shone in the darkness, but the world not only lives in darkness, your Bible just said the world loves the darkness. Part of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, is not only to trust in his name to save, but also to confess that there's part of me that loves the darkness. There's part of me that loves the darkness. As one author said, our better instincts long for the stars, but our sins mean that we are attracted to the dark. We are experiencing a gravitational pull to the black hole of sin's darkness. 
It's like the undercurrent when you go into the ocean. There's something in the human heart that not only craves the darkness, but loves the darkness. Have you ever noticed this? I've used this analogy before. That you could be in a well-lit room, perhaps your living room, and then you go down to your darkest place in your house. Maybe it's a basement or maybe it's a bedroom or a closet or something like this. And what happens? You're in a well-lit room and then you go down into a place of utter darkness. At first, you can't see. At first, you're disoriented. At first, you're going to strip and stumble and fall. What happens if you're in there long enough? You start to see shades. You start to see contours. You start to even learn how to navigate in the dark. And that's only after a couple minutes. Envision an entire lifetime. Envision the entire world. The truth is, is that after the fall in the Garden of Eden, life has been one long history of funerals. Yes, God gives us common graces of recreation, competition. He gives us common graces of love, marriage, family, and children. He gives us common graces of vocation and career. He gives us common graces of knowing what it means to serve. But in the end, in the end, we would rather stay down there in that basement, that dark, dank, ugly, musty basement, than walk up into the light. Why? Have you ever wondered why when you try to share the light of the gospel with people, they like want to look at you different? They want to start running away? They're wondering, how do I get out of this conversation as quick as possible? What's happening? God is using you to shine light into the darkness. There's something in our sinful nature that is allergic to the holiness of God. So when the light shines, it's not just that we're slaves to sin, which before Christ we were. No, it's that we also love the darkness. We would rather stay in the darkness for two reasons. Because the darkness seems to promise that we can sin without any accountability. And that's why the Bible talks about nobody wants to walk into the light. Why? Because their sins will be exposed. In the original Greek, that word exposed means there will be shame and conviction. Meaning that in the darkness, when I think my sins are private and secret, I can continue to sin. Even though I'm miserable, even though I'm in a world of pain and loneliness, brokenness with my friends, brokenness with my family, at least I am in control. That's, of course, when the Bible reaches out its hand, extends its hand, and says, Hi, I'm reality. Have we met? The darkness is not your friend. God wants to deliver you from this life that you've chosen, this life that you've led, this life that the whole world will say, it's okay, keep doing it, do whatever feels good, do whatever you want. There are no repercussions. There are no consequences. And God says, yes, there is, and yes, there will. This is the verdict. That our eyes and our hearts not only adjust to the dark, but we start to love the dark. Friends, remember who this conversation was with? Do you remember? It was several weeks ago. But here in John 3, this is all part of a conversation that Jesus is having with a very religious, moral person. Sometimes it's the religious, moral people that are the most blind to their own darkness. Sometimes it's even the church-going people. 
He's having this conversation with none other than Nicodemus, who he says is not just a teacher of the law. Jesus says, you are the teacher of the law. You sit on the Sanhedrin. You rule over people. So why is Nicodemus not talking to Jesus and asking Jesus questions in the daylight, in the temple, in front of the throngs of masses and crowds and people and all of his contemporaries? Why? Why is he creeping and crawling around in the dark? Because John is not only communicating this truth to the world, John is communicating this truth to Nicodemus. John is even communicating this truth to us, that we need to step out and be honest with God. Remember what he has done. Colossians chapter 1 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. To believe means we trust in Jesus and we're honest about not only our darkness, but the fact that we love the darkness. So, after hearing the victory and the verdict, here is the choice. Last verse, and we'll close. 321 says, But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In the end, light exposes us, in the end, light shines into the darkness. In fact, the darkness wouldn't even know it was darkness until the light shines forth, until the truth is proclaimed, until God's will is revealed. So what is this talking about? This is talking about the choice that we have to say, all right, I've been living a lie. I'm going to step out into God's light, into his truth, no matter what happens. Here's the truth, friends. This is one of the scariest things we can do. How many of us know we would rather do something religious, something nice, and something perhaps traditional as opposed to really being honest and transparent and vulnerable with the Holy God? Give me something I can check off my religious checklist as opposed to that. Because to really confess, I mean, think of it this way, to really get that stuff out, to really, to really be free of it, to really vomit it out of our souls, to confess it, Oh, there's something in us that wants to hold on to that so hard, white-knuckled. This is what the light does. The light reveals God's path home. And the path is to say this. Step out into the light where the truth will be very revealing for your good deeds and your bad. Step out into the light. The choice is yours. So what do we as Christians do? Do we step into the light and say, God, here I am. I know that you're proud of me. I know that I'm your number one pupil. No, we step in the light. How? On our knees. Broken. Humble. Needy. Saying the truth about me is that I need your truth. The truth about me is, Jesus, I need to know I'm loved, even though I'm all kinds of messed up. I like how one author put it. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody. How could you share the light of Jesus Christ with your kids, your spouses, your friends, your family, your enemies this week? How is Jesus calling you to be light in the darkness, even if they love the darkness and even if they won't receive the light? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word. 
And we pray that your word will prepare us to repent, to return, turn from our sin and return to you. Your word will expose the ways, God, that perhaps we're coddling sin. Your word as a light would expose the ways, God, that perhaps we are holding on to bitterness. Your word, God, would expose as a light into a dark place the ways that we just refuse to come to you in honesty and transparency. We just refuse to relinquish control of our lives. If the the word of God is shining light into your darkness this morning, friends, this afternoon, would you look to him? Would you fix your gaze on him? Would you choose victory and life over condemnation and perishing? The verdict is true whether we want to recognize it or not. Let us step into the light and believe today, this hour. As the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. So if you can sense the Lord leading you, guiding you into the light, even though you're not sure where he's going to lead you, just take that first step and pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I'm nervous and I'm scared. I've done truly awful things. And I know that your light is shining on it right now. Help me to believe that your love covers even that. Help me to believe your grace can forgive even that. And help me now to believe and to walk into your light. Say this to the Lord. Please forgive me, God, of my sin. Fill me with your love. And let me follow your lamp, your light, your word the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.